Welcome to Behind the Product, a podcast by SEP, where we believe it takes more than a great idea to make a great product. We've been around for over 30 years, building software that matters more. And we've set out to explore the people, practices, and philosophies to try and capture what's behind great software products. So join us on this journey of conversation with the folks that bring ideas to life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. This episode's a little different from our typical show. Last year for our two-year anniversary, we chose a few highlights from the year prior and mashed those up to give a bit of a sampling. This year for our three-year anniversary, we let our listeners choose the top three. So this episode has a short clip from our top three most popular episodes from the last year. If one or all of these are shows that you haven't listened to, you should totally go back and check them out. The links to each show are in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening to our show all this time. It's something I absolutely love to work on. If you know of someone that would benefit from our show, please consider sharing it with them. And as always, if you have a topic or a person that we should talk to, please let me know. You can find my contact information on the episode page. All right, let's dive in. Our first clip is with Lindsay Picardo. Lindsay and I chatted sometime last year, and I really enjoyed our conversation. It's really those two pieces. So helping high achievers navigate this kind of unknown time without constantly overshooting, which is the classic thing to do. And then helping generations, you know, generational divide. It's more about there's other issues that are underneath that that have nothing to do with being a boomer or being a Gen Z or whatever. So. I find that to be fascinating, but it's all coming to the surface now and how we actually see work and the purpose of work has shifted dramatically and we've got to stay in line with where work is going. Okay. Tell me about this. Well, think about our grandparents. Okay. So wait, let's go way back, like 1925. Speaking of technology and information, things like that, electricity was only in half of the homes in the United States a hundred years ago. You know, uh, now that you say that, I feel both surprised and like, yeah, that kind of makes, makes sense. sense. But, but like, we really never think, thought about that. Yeah. Yeah. My grandpa was born in the 20s. And yeah. so you can imagine he had buddies that didn't have power in their home. Wow. Think about like, and now you and I are, some of our cars that we drive are like computers on wheels. They don't even have gasoline. Correct. They're not Correct. even using standard. And we're sitting here. We've got lights on. We're in this brand new, gorgeous building. All of these things are happening. A hundred years later, we're thinking about holograms now. We're thinking about, you know, how we upload our consciousness to the mainframe. We're just in a whole different world. So part of the tension that we're experiencing is that every generation that's born is born into a different tech era. And the way that we engage with technology changes our brain, changes the the shape, the our actual neurological connections, changes the way we relate to people, and changes our communication short code. So that's why we have so much tension. A big piece of this is that you and I were born in a tech evolution, revolution, and we'll die in it. (laughs) So we're in this hyper dramatic time where communication has changed completely. And each generation is born in with different communication patterns that they use with their peers. That's so fascinating. So I'm 37. I was born in 1985. And I guess that's like elder millennial or something you like that. I was reading about millennials. this. Okay. Yeah. And uh, a couple of things that I find fascinating in this, I've read that us elder millennials, we bridge the divide. I'm, I'm air quoting here. For the internet listening. divide. Yeah. Uh, well, like uh, generational divides too. Like right. I, I can hang out with my parents' friends 
and I can hang out with people that are a little bit younger than me. And and I I feel comfortable in both yes. places. But it's fascinating because I'm a digital native. I was one of the the kids whose families happened to work in tech in the 80s. Mm-hmm. It was still a little rarer back then. I had my own computer when I was pretty young. Like yeah. I got my first personal computer when I was six. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. But my parents worked in telecom and, and, and technology back in the 80s and 90s. I've noticed, though, that I'm... I don't really like texting that much. I do text. Mm-hmm. I really, I'm not a big social media person. I feel uncomfortable a lot of times posting stuff on LinkedIn. Totally. And I read somewhere that the amount of information that gets transferred. So you and I are physically sitting together right now having this conversation. Yeah. We're transferring something like terabytes of information. Yeah. I, I can read your body language. I can see you nodding. I can hear you. But you go like all the way down to a text message. It's like kilobytes mm, of data. There's mm-hmm. no context. There's mm-hmm. no body language. There's no tone. That's right. And I have to imagine that that dramatically impacts how we interact with each other. Yeah. Even in the workplace over Slack. Mm-hmm. It, it There's like, it dehumanizes things. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Well, think about, I think that was part of the purpose of pulling emojis into texting was to uh. be able to give fake body language through like a smiley face or a frown face or a frustrated face. But you're right. Over 90% of communication is nonverbal. Yeah. So you are like sucking milkshake through a straw. It's like you're <laughs> hardly getting any. You're working so hard to get a little bit of data yeah. when you're texting back and forth. And so you're right. There is so many other layers to being a human being that don't translate straight on just texting. That is true. But part of what you're talking about when you say you can hang out with people older than you, significantly older, significantly younger, is that you and I and millennials in general, if you're born in like the 80s and early 90s, you are pre-internet being ubiquitous. So so you remember the world with like phones on the wall. Yeah. Uh You remember maybe your parents had a car phone that like lived in the car. It was mounted permanently. I've got some bag phones in my basement. Again, just because. Brilliant. Yeah. Yes. yes. I remember these things. Yeah. We had records before there was like cool record shops. Like we played records non-ironically. Like we meant it. (laughs) And we taped songs off the radio. And we recorded stuff on a VHS tape. And we used a big old VHS camcorder and so you remember and I remember that time. I remember my grandparents every time I'd come to see them in the morning they would read through the entire newspaper mm-hmm. I would see they have a specific type of cup they had a cup of coffee they always had that in the newspaper I remember analog days wow. now you and I live in digital yes. too but think about I had my kid the other day she literally was asking me about tapes that you put in a tape player yeah. and she couldn't understand how it worked compared to a phone. Like, so you had a tape player that was bigger than your phone, but the tape is smaller than your phone. I don't understand like a Walkman. Like it's so, conf- and now Polaroid pictures are coming back uh-huh, yes, as like a, yes. oh, let's take some cool. mood pictures. Yeah. But millennials lived between these huge tech shifts from analog to digital. And that's why we feel so comfortable kind of, we're really bilingual. And, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. every generation has different languages that they use in different circumstances. But tech wise, we are pretty bilingual. Yeah. We've learned how to stay analog, stay yes. in this side of things, in person, stay connected. And how does that translate in a friendly way yes. online, email? And I mean, social media is like a whole nother evolution of tech, specifically in the communications world. It's wild. We can go into it, but it's a whole nother thing. It's a beast. 
Our next clip is with Bob Mesta. Bob and I met at a conference last year, and we had a blast sitting through and talking through his conference talk and had a follow-up conversation on the podcast. Hope you enjoy. Ooh, that's a great intro. What'd yeah. you think of Bob's new book? It connected the dots for a lot of things that I had been hearing, just kind of being a, a longtime Bob follower, <laughs> so to speak. So I like to listen or read to about anything that Bob comes out with. So I learned a lot of the different things. What was interesting to me was I found these kind of obscure YouTube videos uh, about the red line, green line oh, yeah, development yeah. method. I think it was like eight years ago. And so I'm one of the few people that have actually watched that on YouTube. And I found that really interesting. And I've always thought that that seemed to be, to me, a common thread that would kind of connect all of the jobs, kind of mental model thinking together. And so as I heard you a year or so ago, starting to talk about the five skills of innovator, I had kept thinking about that stuff. And I'm like, oh, I really want to learn more about the red line, green line stuff, and maybe more about the Taguchi methods and some of the other things that maybe you haven't talked about as much in other podcasts and things that I've listened to. And like, so as soon as I started to read the book, you like started off with that. I'm like, yep, <laughs> this is going exactly where I was hoping. If you reflect into shape up, like uh, what I would say is I think of shape up as the, the modern version of the red line, green line. It's very similar in terms of uh, intent and behavior, but it's got better language than what I learned in the I'll say the 80s and 90s, as I learned it kind of raw from Japan and some other people about kind of learning some of those methods and tools. So was, the book is really about making sure I pay homage to my, my mentors, right? I don't know if you can see, but that's a picture of all, uh, all four of them. You got to realize as a dyslexic, almost illiterate kid at 18 and told that I was going to be a baggage handler at the airport and then kind of reflect back and go, boy, I've worked on 3,500 products and I've helped all these different companies and I've started my own, like, like I never would have figured out how I got there. And so part of it is to pay homage because they're past and I feel like their knowledge should be passed on. And at the same time to realize, for people to realize how important mentors are, but also these skills, which I don't feel people are teaching anywhere at this point. It's like the missing secrets of kind of really good entrepreneurship and innovation. So that was really kind of that purpose behind the book. And it was a really fun to write. And to be honest, the book has been done for, I want to say, almost a year. But the graphics are the things I spent so much time on because it's like I wanted to make... For me, I'm a visual person. And it was like I wanted to make sure they matched and they made sense. And I, so I, I took almost a year to do all the graphics. I love that. You know, I have not followed you for nearly as long as Dave has. So I was kind of coming into this... I've been in tech, I've been in product development for maybe 15, 17 years, give or take. You know, I've been exposed to and used a broad range of tools and techniques. I found it refreshing that you talked about this isn't the prescription. This isn't the golden goose of product development. It's just a tool, or I think you use the analogy, an arrow in your quiver. And I absolutely love the humility in that. Well, it's it's true. You know, the book has been around for a while. You've also obviously written other books. Demand Side Sales was one that I went back and uh, read a little bit about. I'm curious, why do you think this was important to do now? What's relevant today that you think was good and important to get this out? It's more of a selfish reason than anything else. Part of this is to realize that as I'm 57 and I'm starting to kind of figure out what I want to do when I grow up kind of thing. And I feel like I've worked on a lot of products and I've worked on a lot of things. And so now it's time to kind of pay back or pay it forward, if you will. There's a mechanics problem to this too, which is uh, I have four children. They're all gone. I'm an empty nester. And part of this started with 
oh my God, I got to clean up my attic or clean up my third floor, which is where I started all my companies. And I have 832 volumes of notebooks from when I was all the way back to, uh, you know, the paint experiment was in there and all that stuff. And so I'm like, what do I do with all these notebooks? And so I spent a week just kind of turning through them and remembering stuff and going like, what do I do with this? And so part of it was the clean out. I think the other part is that as I've been helping teams more and more, and I do, I teach at Northwestern now, and I help out Techstars and Y Combinator and different programs like that. And I was like, what's missing? And so the mental game I went through was, I was literally almost a blank canvas. I had curiosity, which was, I think that was very key as having me learn all these things. But then when I take like the top 20 people I've worked with who are just amazing innovators, and I go, what could they do that nobody else could do? I started to see the five skills kind of coalesce. And I just started to realize like, okay, this is one of those things where everybody's talking about, you know, A-B testing and boy, you got to test more. That's not what I learned is testing. I got to bring that back. And then you start to realize when I talked with people who are really good at testing, you start to realize, no, they're prototyping to learn. They're not actually testing to verify. And you start to realize that language. And so part of this is to realize that as I try to give language to people, and I would say I've been coaching for so long right now that I realize I don't want to repeat myself. And so I'm trying to give people almost the primer to figure out how to interact in a better way. So part of it is selfish. I think the other part, though, is that that I feel like a lot of the language that Deming and Taguchi and Dr. Moore and Clay would use is, is getting dated. And so people say, oh, I know disruption theory, and I know this, and I know that, or I know systems thinking, right? And it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, but you don't know systems thinking how I was taught systems thinking. So part of it was being able to kind of differentiate it from the common knowledge to very, very specific of empathetic perspective, not just having perspective or seeing it from other people's view, but the notion of being able to see it from multiple things and connect dots and that kind of stuff. I just felt like those were really important things to bring up to people or to make aware. And again, make it easier so I could actually have more impact. There's ego in this. I would say I try to be as humble as I can, but for the most part, if I was truly humble, I wouldn't have done it at all. That's fair. We all have ego. Well, I mean, I think it's good to have an intent to share, right? I mean, your mentors have had a big impact on you. And I think that that's a noble thing to try to pass on the knowledge that you've learned to as many other people as you can. The third thing, though, is that I found a process where I can write a book where I don't actually have to write. And what I mean by that is that this book was written in 10 two-hour sessions with somebody who was a writer who loves to write, but doesn't have topics. And so as a collaboration, we basically, I hired them to basically help me write this book. And it's called Scribe Media. They helped me do the last three books, four books. Usually, I always have to find somebody else to be the writer. So I usually am a co-author on it with somebody else. But this allowed me to kind of write a book the way I wanted to write a book or get it out the way. I, it's harder, but like I, I, it just, it allows me to actually have that freedom to, when you read it, it reads like I talk because that's what I did. <laughs> I love that. As somebody that is an external processor, I have a hard time sitting down and typing or writing. I have to verbalize it. So what we do is we spend the first week just framing who's this for? What are they struggling with? What is the outcomes that they're seeking? What does progress look like? What other things are they reaching for? And then ultimately we break that from like almost a beginning to end view. And then we talk about then what are the systems we need to put in place which turn out to be chapters? And then we take each chapter and break it down into a system to say like, what is the function of this chapter? And then ultimately what progress, like how does that feed the next system? And so we use all of the thinking in the book to write the book. (laughs) 
Yeah, I thought it was interesting in the book, you talk a little bit about that process and describe how it works. Maybe to help our audience, one of the things I thought that was good that maybe could help them thinking about as they're picking up. So somebody's going to pick up this book. I think at the end you described, was it four different jobs for who the book was targeting? Can you speak to those just a little bit? So part of it is, is I think it gets back to what are you struggling with? And again, the fundamental premise of jobs to be done is that people just don't randomly buy things. There's causal mechanisms in their lives. So I went off and did research to figure out why do people buy similar books to this and then basically talk through kind of the context that people are in wrapped around it. The four different kind of situations, and I don't remember them off sequence. I was the first one, I think, which was essentially the continuous learner. <laughs> I didn't have a specific work struggle as bringing me to it. It was more of just like, I'm already on this thread of being into this stuff. So the struggle you have is you have time. Yeah. <laughs> I wrote another book called Choosing College. That was it. One of the jobs there is that you'd say it's like a lifelong learner kind of situation, but it's really this aspect of like, I have time. I like to see things from different perspectives and I want to use it to help me reflect on what I want to, like the progress I want to make, but it, I don't have a very pressing problem. It's more about kind of filling my repertoire of stuff I like to do. And so what was the first one? First one was, you know, help me extend myself so I can do better at work. But there's some other ones that help me take a deep dive in an area where I'm lacking. What happens when you learn them, you start to realize the interesting part is these all play with each other, these five skills. You know, it's empathetic perspective, uncovering demand, causal structures, cause and effect, if you will, and then prototyping to learn and then identifying managing trade-offs. And as you go through it, you start to realize, boy, I know these two, but I don't know how to do the prototyping to learn. Or, you know, I don't frame trade-offs. I try to optimize all the time. It's like, okay, I need to dive deep into it. And so this book is really designed to kind of help you kind of round out the portfolio of those skills and that it's more about having the set of them than just being good at any one of them per se. The other job was really around an organization. So there's a lot of times where people will know this stuff. So I'm working with a couple of organizations now where it's like the core team knows this, but they want to extend this thinking beyond the team. And so this was about how do we actually build something where we can give it to either onboard new people coming to the team or getting HR or finance or other people in the extended team to realize these are the kinds of things we're doing when we're innovating. And then the last one is really about those people who are, I'd say, the heart and soul of, to me, the world, the small business owner, the startup, the people who run day-to-day -day things, and that they usually spend more time working in the business than on the business. And can I give them small little things they can do to help work on the business to make it better? And so that's really kind of the way that we literally wrote with those intentions in mind as we wrote the entire book. I love that. The beginning... I'll say parable or story that you talked through, like your first internship, the way that you defined the difference between an inventor and an innovator, I loved. I never thought about it that way. I've often used language like the difference between creativity and ingenuity. I would consider myself to have a high degree of ingenuity. I don't create anything. I'm terrible at creating things, but I'm pretty good, I think, sometimes at poking at something that exists and seeing a way that it might be able to be better. And that's kind of how I think about the things differently. Yeah. Well, this is where I get into conversation with people say, well, you know, if we can't patent it, it's not good. Right. <laughs> so you get people who wanted to create new things and they thought engineering was all about patents. And you, we all know the people who have like a thousand patents or like, you know, a lot of patents. And it's like, and they're really, really smart, but they're not innovators. They're inventors. They obsess almost like the academic realm. So Dr. Deguchi always used to talk about the difference between a scientist and an engineer. And he, said, he would always say, just, you need to remember, you're not a scientist. 
I'm like, no, but I'm using all the scientific principles here. Yeah, but a scientist's job is to describe a phenomenon that we have never seen before and how to utilize the phenomenon. There is no trade-offs in science. It's just truth. And as an engineer, you actually have to be a, not only a scientist, but you also have to be an economist and a psychologist at the same time. Because there's trade-offs and there's context and there's outcomes and there's a whole bunch of other stuff going on. And so the thing that might make most scientific sense might not make the best economic sense. And so this is where we have to realize that we are applied scientists and that as we build things, we have to actually have all three of those worlds in our mind as we go through this. And most inventors are more like scientists and artists where they feel like it's about creating something unique. It's a lot more ego-driven where you find an innovator is actually way more about helping others, building it for others. By the way, that's where I can tell a really good entrepreneur is when they're more worried about the customer or the people that work for them than the money they're going to make. The money will come, but I got to be able to create value on the demand side, which is progress. And I got to create value on the supply side, which is return on investment. And ultimately, those are the things that if they're worried about those two sides, then they're almost always successful. And when you look at repeat entrepreneurs, their whole world is about by the time they're like a third time over, they're just powerhouses because they realize like, it's not about the money at all. It's all about helping people on both sides of the world. And you start to realize like, they're just so fun to work with. So fun. It's almost like wrapping a business around a passion versus building a business because you see an opportunity, but you have no relevant experience or passion behind it. And our last clip is a conversation I had with Abhishek Nayak. Abhishek shared a lot of his experience working in the Indian market, and I learned a ton in this show. So hope you enjoy. That's fascinating that that there's that much cash transaction still happening because I am very, if I could didn't have to carry a car key or a wallet ever again, I'd be the happiest person on the planet. Uh, I'm, I'm very much uh, is digital and is, is like, let me tap my phone <laughs> to do everything kind of person. So uh, yeah, that's fascinating. I wonder how much that is compared to, to the US and Europe. Or maybe some other countries. If is, do you know? Is there any? Are there any statistics about that? Was that like a part of your, uh, part of the research that you did around that that uh, that that product, or was it just to serve India? So, uh, so we were very focused on just serving India. The thing is, I I did remember US used to have about six or seven percent, uh, but this was about fourteen years ago. I oh, don't wow. think that's the case anymore. I think. It would probably be zero today. Wow. There, there used to be a couple of companies which were letting Amazon pay in cash, rather than letting Amazon consumers pay in cash to Amazon. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm forgetting the names, but but there was sure. one that was funded by Khosla Ventures, I remember. Uh, but, the, but the main thing was Indian markets are totally different from the American markets. Yeah, Indian consumers yeah. behave very, very differently. And... There's one strata of the Indian society, which is probably no different from how consumers in New York or San Francisco behave. But then there is the other strata of consumers who behave uh, very similar to how, you know, people in maybe like the most backward, uh, technologically backward countries behave. Uh, So it's a very fascinating country because of the wide spectrum of users that you tend to deal with. Uh, so product management can be exceptionally difficult here because you have no idea who your actual target segment is. Yeah. Uh, 
but it's also fascinating because you can have all sorts of businesses survive at the very same time. Yeah, I was going to ask one of the things that came to my mind, if that, that seems like a very, you know, sometimes the best ideas are, are sometimes the most obvious. After you've thought of it, it's not obvious up until that point. How many competitors were in the market when you, when you guys were trying to scale this business? Was there was just a couple of players? Had people already been doing this or um, uh, were you one of the first to market? Uh, so we had other courier services doing this already, but for them, it was a side business for them mm. uh, because back then they did not look at e-commerce as a large source of their revenue. They never had real-time APIs to update status. Uh, they didn't make it easy for people to get the cash back sure. uh, and neither did they make it easy for customers to get a refund uh, You know when mm. they decided they wanted to return the product. So this experience hadn't been thought through. So we were the first company which actually thought through that experience and delivered it as a highly focused service. Uh, we did right. nothing but deal with cash on delivery for e-commerce. Wow. Uh, so very so strategic up, uh, niche for you guys. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, Extremely yeah. focused. Uh, we had really strong pricing power in that market because uh, I don't remember giving a discount beyond the first five customers we had. And when we exited the company, we had around 900 customers. Wow. Uh, we never gave a discount beyond the first five because we had so much pricing power in the market because there was mm. nobody else who was providing that experience. Uh, and we were just able to charge uh, what we wanted. And that wow. really taught me a big lesson, uh, which I still apply it at AppSmith, which is if you're a unique player in a market that desperately needs your product, uh, you can actually start by charging small, but you can keep increasing your prices and uh, customers, yeah, pretty quickly and customers will be happy to pay you that because you're uh, giving that value. So that's, that's, something that's so fascinating. Really wow. All right. Let's, let's fast forward to exited from, from this company and onto company number two. Tell me, tell me a little bit about that. So after I exited my first startup, I worked for a little bit uh, at the company that acquired us. And then I took a short break. Uh, so this was a period of about uh, one and a half, two years of me working and then taking a break for around six sure. months or so. So uh, that's when I realized the thing that I love the most is actually working on technology that's hard, but something that doesn't deal with atoms. I realized, you know, I lost a lot of hair. I started graying prematurely because of my first startup because it was sure. exceptionally stressful running it day in and day out. So I wanted to do something that was pure software uh, where I did not have to deal with atoms, anything in the real world. Uh, so, my, so my second startup was, it was very fascinating because I started with a clear technology in mind, which was AI. I wanted to automate certain things. And uh, this is 2016, 2017, when it was still the early days of AI. Things were getting hot though. Uh, investors were willing to invest. Customers were willing to listen to mm. AI products. So I thought that was a great time to start a startup. The mistake that we made was uh, we started with the technology in mind, but we never figured out what product we would actually sell till the first six months had gone by. Uh, so we ended up deciding to automate customer support because uh, we realized that's a company's org. And any savings that you make on customer support uh, you know, directly shows up in your profit, uh, which is just amazing. We decided to automate customer support. Uh, the reason we chose customer support was because we thought uh, that's one of the first places where AI should automate that piece. 
people don't generally enjoy doing customer support. Uh, it costs a lot of money. So therefore, your margins get affected. Mm. Uh, and third, customer support just doesn't scale as quickly as your company sometimes does. Yeah, so you that's true. need to, uh, you know, automate this. Uh, the problem was we were thinking about this outside in. None of us, none of the three founders had ever worked on customer support at scale before. Uh, we had only experienced good and bad customer support as consumers, but we had never actually uh, done anything about it ourselves. Right. Uh, so we just tackled that industry because we thought it needs to be automated. Uh, and for this particular startup, we ended up raising money from Axel Partners and from Y Combinator. Uh, but uh, literally within, I would say, about eight months of us launching the product, uh, it was very clear that we weren't actually serving a need. Or mm. even if we were serving a need, it wasn't effective enough that companies were willing to uh, stay and be retained with us. Uh, we had a lot of companies coming in and signing up. But they would only pay us for a month and then they would churn out the next month. Uh, and this is the experience that we went through for about eight or nine months. Uh, and uh, this is the period when I decided, okay, uh, bicycle AI isn't really working out. And mind you, before these eight months that we had spent after launch, we had spent a good year and a half just building the product. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is, uh, you know, over two years of work that has gone into doing this and it's just not working out. Uh, so we decided to stop working completely on AI and actually completely pivot to something else uh, because all of us had been sick and tired of spending so much time on AI and it not going anywhere. Uh, yeah. So we decided, let's just build something that we want, uh, something that we would love to use. And then we're going to just build it out, launch it and see what happens. This was literally at the bottom of our mojo. Uh, we were just feeling so tired and frustrated uh, yeah. at the end of you know two and a half years. Of yeah. doing this so we decided to build a game and decided to build a trivia game because that's something that uh, i was really good at which was trivia uh, and i thought hey let's just do like a trivia game which is a mix of uh, there was something called as hq trivia in the us that was taking mm -hmm. off mm -hmm. and then there was uh, these other trivia products and other trivia games that existed so the idea was to do something that was a marriage of two uh, but something that i personally wanted to play and that was the aim. That's all. That uh, Let's build something that I would love so that uh, we can build it and actually see if it succeeds or not. Because building something that we thought other people would love was not working out for us. Yeah. Uh, so we just decided to do this. Uh, so we spent 45 days building this product out. We actually launched it one week after I got married, you know, because we were on a tight deadline and we were about to run out of money. So we just had to do uh, like a wow. final sort of a expedition, a final yeah. quest yeah. To, uh, to do this. So we built out this game thing uh, within 45 days. The crazy thing is uh, within the first 60 months of, it of its launch, uh, we were at 120,000 DAUs, 120,000 wow. people playing the game yeah. every single day yeah. uh, and about 50,000 people playing it concurrently. Uh, it was a shocking scale for us because we went from completely failing to actually mm -hmm. having something that people were loving to use and people were talking about it. And those two months were an extraordinary period for us because we learned so much about what does growth mean? Uh, what does yeah. retention mean? And uh, what does building a consumer product mean? Because it was the first time we were ever building a consumer product. I'd only done B2B products before. Yeah. Uh, so, so that experience really taught me that 
if you build something that you truly love and uh, you focus very much on that, on just satisfying what is it that you think is necessary, there is a chance it might succeed. Yeah. Uh, we obviously responded to user feedback very quickly, uh, tweaked the game levels, tweaked the way the game works so that, uh, you know, uh, it becomes easier to play, easier to adopt. Uh, so we did all of that very quickly, but it did start with the need that I personally had. Uh, mm. So that definitely taught me something. One of the things that we also learned about games three months after this was games tend to go up and then they disappear. Because sure. yeah, people quick who have a lot of fusion, they go, they go through the curve really quick. Exactly, exactly. Yeah.